0: Hello there, Pigskins fans, and welcome to the Wild Card Weekend Edition of the Stat Pack. I'm your host, Adam Dobrovolsky, and today we take a look at, of course, a six-pack of headlines from Week 17, as well as a look ahead to the Wild Card Weekend, but also a look at the regular season awards, a look at which coaches should have and should not have been fired, and, of course... We have to get some power rankings involved, and we will rank all 12 playoff teams based on their chances to win Super Bowl 47. Now, hopefully we have some good things in store for this postseason. Last year had its fair share of amazing stories, like the 9-7 New York Giants upsetting the 15-1 Green Bay Packers before defeating the 13-3 San Francisco 49ers in overtime and then defeating the New England Patriots, who were also 13-3, 21-17 in Super Bowl forty-six. Of course, you also had that crazy finish to the AFC Championship game, so crazy finishes, huge upsets, hopefully have more similar things in store for the 2012 postseason. But first, let's get things started on this edition of the Stat Pack with a look at our six-pack of headlines. First things first here on our six-pack of headlines, we look at a team that, well, had the epic fail. And usually that's the way things work nowadays when we talk about sports. The epic fail, we somehow, for some reason, still obsessed with Tim Tebow, even though the Jets were 6-10 and 10 and weren't going anywhere, no matter who was quarterback. Because none of the quarterbacks were all that good, to be quite frank. Yes, I know, Tim Tebow. Had a real quarterback rating in the 80s, but he also had a sample size slightly higher than my sample size as a quarterback in 2012. So who knows if he would have been good or not. I don't think he would have been good. Just look at the Denver Broncos. One year removed from Tim Tebow. I think they're doing pretty good now that they have a legitimate quarterback who can pass the ball with regular ability. But anywho, let's talk about the epic fail. With Big D, that's right, the Dallas Cowboys falling apart once again in a Week 17 game. And Tony Romo once again. Tony Romeo with the failures as the Dallas Cowboys fall to the Washington Redskins at FedEx Field on Week 17. 28-18, the Dallas Cowboys, they go home once again, 8-8. Eight and eight, And once again in Week 17, fall short of the NFC East Divisional Crown. But here, the first thing on our stat pack is we look at Tony Romo's biggest problem. And no, it's not the fourth quarter failures, because the fourth quarter is actually where he has shined most of his career outside of, well, obviously last week. But what I want to look at his biggest problem is his first quarter play. That's right. Tony Romo had three interceptions against the Washington Redskins, and two interceptions came in the first quarter. In fact, They came on the first two drives of a game, and both of them were interceptions in Washington Territory. Both of the plays could have set the tone for the Dallas Cowboys to win the game. However, Tony Romo continued his issues in the first quarter. This season, Romo, in the first quarter, his passer rating is, well, quite horrible, to be honest. 69.35 entering week 7.0. He ended up having two more interceptions in week 17 in the first quarter. And you look at his final numbers in the first quarter, and they're quite staggering. Overall, Tony Romo completed 76 of 123 passes in the first quarter for 748 yards. However, he threw only one touchdown compared to six interceptions, which led up to a horrible pass rating of 61.30. In the first 15 minutes this plays a huge role for the dallas cowboys in this 2012 season because dallas ended up trailing in the fourth quarter at some point in 13 of their 16 games including 12 of the team's last 13 games again this is a a team that had tony romo pass just about two-thirds of his passes this season when the team was trailing and we talked about that a few weeks ago when I said that Tony Romo in fact was the most clutch quarterback in the second half of the season that of course all the way up until week 17 with that fourth quarter interception but it was his first fourth quarter interception in the last seven games of the season so obviously the untimely mistake by Tony Romo but he never would have been in position with the team down 21-18 If he had cashed in on one of those first two drives to give the Cowboys the lead. Think about it. Dwayne Harris returns the punt to give the Cowboys in their first drive the ball in Washington territory. Then on third down, which was Tony Romo's other bugaboo this year, he throws the pass behind Kevin Ogletree and it's intercepted. To be quite frank, there's just no excuse for it. And once again, the Cowboys struggles early on in the game cost them a chance for the victory now the Cowboys did eventually score the first points of the game but that came in the second quarter when the Cowboys went up seven nothing imagine if they got points in the first quarter they could have been up by double digits and perhaps be nine and seven in the divisional champs so Tony Romo's biggest problem continues to be the first quarter his career it's about a 20 point differential for Tony Romo between the first quarter and his other three quarters in terms of his career numbers. In Tony Romo's career in the first quarter, here are the splits for him. 427 completions and 679 pass attempts for 4510 yards, 25 touchdowns and 29 interceptions. That's a passer rating of 76.64. Meanwhile, From the second quarter on, that's right, second quarter to overtime, Tony Romo's numbers read 1,670 completions in 2,561 attempts for 21,227 yards, 152 touchdowns, and 62 interceptions, which leads to a stellar passer rating of 100.66. So you look at a differential in... His first quarter of negative 24.02. He's 24 points worse in the first quarter than he is for the rest of the game. So bottom line is for all that people want to talk about Tony Romo and his quote unquote late game failures. And they want to point to singular examples of Tony Romo quote unquote choking. The bottom line is this. He doesn't need to be in that position to choke the game away if he gets the job done in the first quarter. And throughout his career, he's habitually struggled in the first quarter, and that continues to be his biggest downfall. His only season where he had even at least a 90 passer rating in the first quarter was last year, and ironically, the defense blew that for Tony Romo. That was Tony Romo's career year, and at the beginning of the season, I did mention how Tony Romo was not going to improve upon that 2011 season. In fact, the Cowboys would have a worse pass rating than they did last year. And they put together a pass rating over 100. So, Tony Romo this year, arguably his worst in the first quarter in terms of a touchdown to interception ratio, but it continues to be the constant theme. Tony Romo is the first quarter choke artist. Not the fourth quarter choke artist. Second up on our six pack of headlines. Still involves the Dallas Cowboys and it's a fact that the 2012 Dallas Cowboys would be nothing without Tony Romo. Expect a 5-11 or a 4-12 season in 2012 for Dallas. So while people are calling for Tony Romo's head and rightfully so, after his catastrophic mistakes in Week 17. Remember, he was on fire his previous eight weeks, and he did lead the league with five fourth-quarter comebacks. And again, the Cowboys trailed in the fourth quarter in 13 of their 16 games, including 12 of their last 13. But also throw this in mind, Jason Garrett's pass-heavy scheme. The leading rusher this year for the Dallas Cowboys was DeMarco Murray. He had just 663 rushing yards. Think about this. Over the last two seasons, the Cowboys running backs combined had just 11 rushing touchdowns, which is less than the league leaders this year alone in terms of running backs and rushing touchdowns. Oh, by the way, in Sunday's game against the Redskins, the Cowboys passed 39 times and rushed 22. Tony Romo had... 648 passing attempts. and That doesn't even include the dropbacks that resulted in a sack. It doesn't even include the negated pass plays due to penalties. So, bottom line, the offense relied completely on Tony Romo. But, then you look at the defense. And the Cowboys finished this year right at the bottom again in defensive passer rating as You'll look at the numbers in the past few seasons, and they've been quite horrible with the pass defense. The Cowboys in 2012 finished 29th in defensive passer rating at 94.67. Remember, they also finished 29th two years ago. Last year, they finished 25th. Bottom line, Rob Ryan's defense not getting it done in terms of the secondary. But also the front seven didn't get it done. The Cowboys finished 30th in a defensive hog index. So, let's see. The running game didn't get it done. The defense didn't get it done. So, what would have happened if you had a quarterback who didn't have the fourth quarter ability that Tony Romo had? Bottom line, you would have had a 5-11 and or a 4-12 team in Big D this season. So before people start complaining about how the Cowboys absolutely must get rid of Tony Romo, consider that over the years, Tony Romo's been better than two-thirds of the starting quarterbacks and been better than pretty much all the backups. Just keep in mind that right now, this team revolves around Tony Romo. So if the Cowboys were to get rid of Tony Romo, they would need to rebuild. And obviously, Jerry Jones is not ready for that. And I don't think the Cowboys really need to completely rebuild at this point. I think what they need to do is figure out how to use their team better. Get a new head coach. Get a new defensive coordinator. Get a little bit of a balance going. Run and pass. And try to develop a quarterback who can take over for Tony Romo. Or if he once again chokes the next season... You might have someone waiting in the wings to take over and be ready to get some production going as opposed to have to draft a new quarterback and immediately thrust him in or trade for some other middling quarterback and the Cowboys end up having, you know, 5-11 and 11 seasons for three years in a row like they did from 2000 to 2002. Bottom line, Tony Romo is the best thing the Cowboys have going for them right now and really... Maybe that shows you why they're habitually 8-8, eight and 9-7, eight, one and done in the playoffs, or choking in Week 17. But the bottom line is, he's the best they have right now. Here on the stat pack, we move on and far away from the Dallas Cowboys. That pretty much wraps up the talk about the 2012 Cowboys. But here for number three on our six-pack of headlines, we look at someone who may eventually draw comparison. To Tony Romo if he doesn't wake up in the postseason. That quarterback is Matt Ryan of the Atlanta Falcons. Matt Ryan has lost his first three playoff starts and if he loses again in the divisional round two weeks from now he will move below Tony Romo on the all-time disappointment list in terms of quarterback playoff records. Tony Romo between the playoffs and week 17 elimination games has a one in six record his passer rating is well quite pedestrian in the four playoff games where he's one in three his pass rating 80.85 and then in the three elimination games in week seven his pass rating 79.35 but at least he has one win to his ledger matt ryan if he loses in the divisional round and falls to 0-4 in the postseason will become only the second quarterback in nfl history to lose his first four playoff starts the only other quarterback to do that was y.a tittle and y.a tittle was one of the greatest passers of all time in fact he once upon a time had the passing touchdown record for a single season however his postseason numbers are quite egregious Tittle's postseason numbers reads quite like a train wreck. In five games, including one relief appearance, Tittle's numbers read at 70 completions in 157 attempts for 874 yards, four touchdowns, and 14 interceptions for a pass rating of 33.77. No matter what era that's in, it's really bad. Matt Ryan obviously isn't as bad as that. In three playoff starts, 70 completions, 110 attempts, 584 yards, three touchdowns, four interceptions, and a pass rating of 71.17. But Matt Ryan's still in select company. Here are the quarterbacks who lost their first three playoff starts. Peyton Manning, who started 0-3, and then finally won a playoff game and in fact actually reached the AFC championship game in 2003. He's currently 9-10 in the postseason and will obviously get start number 20 two weeks from now as the Denver Broncos have the top seed in the AFC. Meanwhile, Randall Cunningham also started 0-3. He would win a playoff game in 1992 defeating the New Orleans Saints before the Eagles lost in the divisional round to the Dallas Cowboys. Cunningham would finish with a 3-6 postseason record and was a Gary Anderson field goal away from making it into the Super Bowl in 1998. Jack Kemp in the AFL started 0-3 and in fact would only play in six playoff games in six different seasons. He would finish 2-4. and four, Winning a pair of AFL championships, his first playoff win was the AL championship in 1964. Meanwhile, you have Burt Jones, Bobby Aber and Steve Grogan all at 0-3. And finally, Y.A. Tittle at and 4 So you look at the select company there. You have some good situations with Manning, Cunningham, and Kemp. Not so much with Jones, Bear, and Grogan. And although Y.A. Tittle, one of the greats all-time at quarterback, in terms of a playoff perspective, that is your worst-case scenario. So Matt Ryan better get that Matty Ice up two weeks from now, and get the Atlanta Falcons a victory. And I already said before this, earlier in this season, that I thought that the Falcons would not win the Super Bowl this year, and this year would be the stepping stone for Matt Ryan. I still hold by that contention. He needs to get a playoff win, though this year, to give the Falcons a chance at the Super Bowl the following season. Number four on our six-pack of headlines involves the game of the week which is also the Game of the Year. That's right, my nomination for the 2012 regular season Game of the Year is a Week 17 battle between the Minnesota Vikings and the Green Bay Packers. This game had everything you wanted. Adrian Peterson chasing for history, trying to get 2,000 yards. A home game for the Vikings in the Loud Dome, and the Vikings with a victory, a chance to clinch a postseason berth. It reminds me way back when to 1997 when the Detroit Lions hosted the New York Jets and Barry Sanders was chasing for the 2,000-yard mark. The Lions would win the game and make the postseason, and Barry Sanders would reach the 2,000-yard mark. Here, though, Adrian Peterson was nine yards away from setting the NFL record in probably way he could have done, what was actually probably best for his chances to set the record, was going out of bounds on that final run. If he could have found a way to go out of bounds, he could have had time for one more run, and if the Vikings didn't get a touchdown, they could have used a timeout and had Blair Walsh kick the game-winning field goal. But bottom line, Adrian Peterson did what's best for the team, and the Vikings won the game 37-34 in what was the most exciting quarter of the 2012 season. Back and forth we went. The Packers down 27-24. Got a field goal from Mason Crosby to make it 27-27. Right after that, a deep pass to Jarius Wright helped to set up a touchdown for the Vikings as they went up 34-27. Michael Jenkins with the key touchdown for Minnesota. But back would come the Packers. They immediately tie it right back up 34-piece before the next drive the Vikings hold the ball until the end and win it on a Blair Walsh field goal. You couldn't ask for better football, and unfortunately this puts a lot of pressure, I guess, on the viewers to enjoy as much as possible the Saturday night matchup between the Packers and Vikings because I think we all know it won't be as good as the 2012 regular season game of the year, the Week 17 victory for the Vikings over the Packers. Now on to number five for our six-pack of headlines, and that involves more of the same old, same old, as we look forward to the wild card weekend and the NFL postseason. Time to look a little bit ahead now of what we have to come, and I will say this, we have more of the same old, same old in both the AFC and the NFC. In the past decade or so, the AFC's been all about a lack of parity, while the NFC has had quite a good amount of parity. The AFC, the regulars, New England, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, or if you prefer to look at the quarterback perspective, Brady, Manning, Roethlisberger. While there's no Steelers this year, you have the same four-division champs, and of course you have Tom Brady and Peyton Manning looking all geared up to battle in the AFC Championship game. If you look at it by seed, how the teams rank in the Quality Stats Power Rankings, it looks pretty much like a lack of parity. Denver ranked second, and they're on fire, winning 11 in a row. New England, they're ranked sixth, and they've won nine of their last ten. Meanwhile, the three seed, Houston, despite falling down a bit, they're still seventh in the Quality Stats Power Rankings. Meanwhile, Baltimore, despite falling they are 11th. Meanwhile, your five-seed Indianapolis, 22nd. And finally, Cincinnati, perhaps the biggest chance of a spoiler here, they're ranked 9th in the Quality Stats Power Rankings. But as it looks right now, it looks like the home team will have the advantage in the Quality Stats Power Rankings throughout the AFC playoffs. That's right, if you're to do an automatic simulator of teams winning based on the higher ranking in the uh, quality stats power rankings you would have a perfect postseason for the home team in the AFC so obviously it looks like we're going to have Manning or Brady represent the AFC in the Super Bowl once again however in the NFC we have quite a bit of a difference Atlanta the top seed is fifth in the quality stats power rankings and that's in fact fourth among NFC teams ahead of them, the second seeded at San Francisco 49ers, who are fourth, the third seeded Green Bay Packers, who are third and red hot after a two and three start. They finished the year with a nine and two record. Meanwhile, of course, you have the top ranked Seattle Seahawks, 11 and five and the fifth seed in the NFC. So there's quite a bit of mix up here. You wrap things up, the 4-seed, the Washington Redskins are 10th in the quality stats power rankings, and the Minnesota Vikings are 16th. So, the NFC looks like it might be sending perhaps a newcomer, unless Aaron Rodgers can get the job done, because, let's see, you have four quarterbacks making their playoff debuts, including two rookies, Russell Wilson and Robert Griffin, the third, and then two second-year players Colin Kaepernick and Christian Ponder then you have Matt Ryan who's 0 for 3 in the playoffs so the only quarterback in the NFC you have that will start in the playoffs who has a playoff victory is Aaron Rodgers he's 4-2 and but has two one and duns. so that's right of the six starting quarterbacks in the NFC postseason there's been only one postseason combined where any quarterbacks got in a victory, and that was the 4-0 and run for the 2010 Green Bay Packers. So bottom line, the NFC, well, more new blood. The AFC, more of the same. And finally, we close things off for our six-pack of headlines with another look ahead to the postseason, this specifically on the wild-card weekend. And I will say this. As much as the quality stats do a great job of indicating who has the advantage to win the football game, I think this week won't be as reliable as most. And I don't like to say this because all the quality stats have been fantastic indicators throughout the years, and they've been able to help pick out some key upsets over the years in the postseason. In 2009, Cold Hard Football Facts said it. The New York Jets, at 9-7, would take down the 13-3 San Diego Chargers in California. The Jets did it. You look at it in 2010, the Green Bay Packers were number one in the quality stats power rankings. And as a six seed, they still won the Super Bowl, defeating the second-ranked team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. So the quality stats, they do a great job indicating who can and who should win and most likely who will win. But this week, I think, is actually a bit misleading, and it's based on the teams facing each other. It's not really based on the quality stats themselves being unreliable. Let's look at the Saturday matchups quickly. Cincinnati at Houston. Houston is ice cold right now, 1-3 in in their last four games. So although they rank 7th in the quality stats power rankings, the team they bring to the field Saturday afternoon is probably more likely going to be a team that's more middle of the pack. Go back when the Texans were the top tier team through week 13. They were 11-1. and And if you look at the quality stats, they're top nine all around. But now they're 14th in scorability, 15th in pendability, 13th in real passing yards per attempt. 11th in real quarterback rating. They're 10th in offensive pass rating. 10th in defensive pass rating. And 12th in the offensive hog index. In fact, the only quality stat that has not declined from week 13 to week 17 is the defensive hog index. And we'll talk about what is important about that in just a moment. But bottom line, the Texans, they're ice cold right now. And Matt Schaub in the last four games has a pass rating of 78.61. He's been sacked 12 times. He's only converted 15 of 49 third-down attempts with that Houston Texans offense, while the defense has allowed 25 conversions in 53 attempts. And the team is averaging just a bit over four yards per carry. So they're getting worse. in all these key indicators and the Cincinnati Bengals have been red hot as of late. They've gone seven and one in the second half of the season and went from a team that at three and five looked like a weak three and five in the quality stats and in the bottom eight in the league, all the way up to the top ten. So looking at it right now, that in itself was already a close matchup, but might be a little bit more in favor of the underdog Cincinnati Bengals. The second Saturday matchup is Minnesota at Green Bay and although Green Bay has a 13 spot advantage in the quality stats power rankings the two games between the two teams ended up in a combined score of Packers 67, Vikings 61, Adrian Peterson 309 rushing yards and really I think that just gives a prelude to how divisional matchups have been as of late. In the last eight Playoff games between teams in the same division, you have, well, quite a few close games. One game was determined by four points, the New York Giants in the fifth seed defeating the top seed Dallas Cowboys 21 17 in 2007. Then you have a trio of seven point games Pittsburgh over Baltimore in 2010, Jets as a five seed over the top seeded New England Patriots in 2010, and the six seeded Green Bay Packers over the two seeded. Chicago Bears in 2010, and then you have two games that were still within shouting distance. Pittsburgh defeating Baltimore 23-14 in 2008, and Philadelphia, the number six-seeded Eagles defeating the top-seeded Giants 23-11 in 2008. Finally, you have two blowouts in 2009. Dallas defeating Philadelphia 34-14, and New England defeating New York 37-16 in 2006. So bottom line, the way I look at it is that divisional familiarity usually makes the game closer, and I think that's going to be the case. Just the divisional familiarity will make it closer than what the quality stats will indicate. Meanwhile, for your two Sunday games, you have Indianapolis at Baltimore, which will be largely determined by these emotional headlines. Chuck Pagano coming back to the team last week after fighting off leukemia. And the Colts get an impressive victory that, in fact, moved them up five spots in the quality stats power rankings when they took down the Texans 28-16. Meanwhile, on the other side, you have the Baltimore Ravens playing for Ray. That's right, Ray Lewis, announcing that he will retire at the end of the season. So both of these teams will be motivated to get the job done, and I think that in itself will have a lot more to do with this game being close and you will probably still see a slight difference from the quality stats indicators, but not as much as what this game originally would look like with the Colts really not belonging statistically in the playoffs. And then finally, the Sunday afternoon game, Seattle at Washington. And although the Seahawks are the top team in the quality stats power rankings, you look at their road marks and while well, they're not as impressive, Russell Wilson this season, just an 83.12 passer rating on the road. That's right around the league average. And in fact, the Seahawks are just slightly above average in terms of the relativity index on the road. In their eight games, they were 1.40 in the relativity index on the road. Meanwhile, on the other side, you have Washington's pass defense doing a pretty good job during the team's seven-game winning streak. They moved up from 29th to 24th in defensive real passing yards per attempt, up from 26th to 16th in defensive real quarterback rating, and up from 24th to 18th in defensive passer rating. So bottom line, it looks like that game as well will be closer than what the quality stats indicate. So bottom line, if I'm to give you any uh, sort of hint of what to do this week is... Go with your heart if you really feel like that's going to be the case, but if you're really split on who's going to win, take a slight advantage on the teams that have the better mark and the quality stats, but don't let it be the be-all and end-all just for this week based on the matchup. However, next week, I think that will be your cookies, your cream, your meat, your potatoes, whatever you want to say. Next week, I think, is when things will really come in during the divisional round where you don't have that playoff familiarity and you don't have that emotion and you don't have those teams that are hot and cold combating against each other. It's a unique wild card weekend, to say the least. Moving on forward here in the stat pack, we take a look at our awards winners for the 2012 regular season. First things first, my MVP is Adrian Peterson. Now, just a few weeks ago, it probably would have been Peyton Manning, but the difference here is how Adrian Peterson chasing the single-season rushing record book ended up sparking the Minnesota Vikings to the playoffs. Look at their last four games, victories, against the 10-6 Chicago Bears, a team that was knocked out of the postseason by the Minnesota Vikings. The 7-8-1 St. Louis Rams. Again, a team that had an outside chance of being in the playoffs, but the Vikings kicked them out. Then you have the 12-4 Houston Texans, who are now the 3-seed instead of the number 1 seed, thanks to the Minnesota Vikings. And then finally, you look at it, the 11-5 Green Bay Packers with the season on the line. Adrian Peterson, nearly 200 yards, sending his team to victory and knocking the Green Bay Packers out from the 2-seed, in the nfc so adrian pearson finishing strong ends up getting my most valuable player award meanwhile the offensive player of the year won't be peyton manning in fact it's going to be calvin johnson now i know what you're saying if you're a regular reader of cold hard football facts why a wide receiver they're not valuable well exactly wide receivers aren't that valuable they rely a lot on volume stats like receptions and receiving yards, and the quarterback obviously is the most important part of the passing offense. However, you look at what Calvin Johnson did on a regular weekly basis, and he deserves at least the Offensive Player of the Year award. He's not having any value here by getting this award. It's just showing that he's an outstanding offensive player. Calvin Johnson setting the NFL record with 1,964 yards in a single season. Oh, by the way, he also had 122 receptions. He had five receptions in all but two games this season. That was game six and game seven of the season, the Bears and the Seahawks respectively in those games. Meanwhile, Calvin Johnson also had a league-high 102 yards forced by defensive pass interference, and he also had 11 100-yard games including a streak of eight in a row from games 8 to 15, and also six double-digit reception games, including a streak of four in a row from games 12 to 15. Bottom line, Calvin Johnson, an outstanding player, and his historical season gets him my Offensive Player of the Year. As for the Defensive Players of the Year, that's right, Players of the Year, I'm going to split it between J.J. Watt and Geno Atkins. And I'm going to be quite frank here. I don't think it's fair for either one not to get the award because you look at what these two guys have done, and it goes beyond the stats. I'm going to give you quickly, though, the stats for J.J. Watt as a 3 4 defensive end 20 and a half sacks, 15 swats, and 23 run stops. Geno Atkins as a 4 3 defensive tackle, 12 and a half sacks, and four forced fumbles. But it goes beyond that. The domination these guys had at their respective positions have never been seen in this era of football. In fact, I'd argue that J.J. had the best season ever by a 3-4 defensive end. As for Geno Atkins, to me it's at least the best year ever by a 4-3 defensive tackle since Cortez Kennedy won the AP Defensive Player of the Year for a 2-14 and Seahawks team in 1992. That year, he had 14 sacks and four forced fumbles. So those guys share my Defensive Players of the Year. As for the Offensive Rookie of the Year, Robert Griffin III will slightly beat out Russell Wilson. And, well, it's a little bit tough because, obviously, you look at Robert Griffin III putting together just a fantastic year, leading the league in yards per attempt, leading the league, In interception percentage. It kind of reminds me of Gray Cook in 1969, and I mentioned that a few weeks ago. And then you have Russell Wilson having that big game muscle, five victories against quality teams, and it would have been a sixth had the Cowboys not choked away the game in Week 17. I guess we're still talking about the 2012 Cowboys. But anywho, bottom line is, you look at that historical precedent, and those... Guys both deserve the Offensive Rookie of the Year, but I'm not going to cower out here. I already have one co-award here, so we'll stick to just one winner, and it's going to be RGA3 simply because I think he's done it with less. You have that Super Bowl quality defense for the Seattle Seahawks. You have a running game that was already established coming into the season. But with Washington, you look at that running game and what Alfred Morris has done – I think a lot of it has been aided by the way those guys work together with the spread option. RG3, holding on the ball that he handed off to Alfred Morris, and there's a little bit space because the linebackers contain. Well, that's been the case on quite a few occasions. So although Alfred Morris is a top five candidate for Rookie of the Year, I think a lot of it has to do with RG3, so he gets my Offensive Rookie of the Year. As for the defensive rookie of the year, I don't think there's a question. It's got to be Bobby Wagner, in my opinion. Not only because he had a great year statistically, 140 tackles, two sacks, three interceptions, and four passes defense, but he's the Seattle Seahawks middle linebacker. He's the guy who's guiding the defense, getting them all in the right place as a rookie, and they're the best defense in the league. So that is pretty obvious to me. As for the coach of the year, no disrespect to Chuck Pagano, but I give it to Bruce Arians. And I just think the fact that him being in the locker room through all of that is really something that you can't overstate. I mean, obviously, this team was going to be motivated to win for Chuck Pagano, so I wouldn't by any means find a fault if they decide to split the Coach of the Year award between Pagano and Arians. But it was Arians who was in that locker room reminding the team that they need to play and be... Chuck Strong so Bruce Arians gets my coach of the year and finally my comeback player of the year will be Peyton Manning and he gets it over Adrian Pearson just because of the medical precedent set by Peyton Manning he had four surgeries on his neck and he had the spinal fusion and for some other guys who knows if this will be the case for Peyton Manning but for some other guys they end up still despite the fusion in the neck, having some degeneration in the spine. Now, I look at Edge, not the football player Edger and Jeans, but the wrestler. I know I'm going weird here with the WWE reference, but he had to retire after getting neck fusion years upon years ago due to cervical spinal stenosis, which is a narrowing of the spine column. And pretty much doctors told him, you can't compete because you risk breaking your neck and being paralyzed. I don't know if Peyton Manning is nearly to that severity, but the bottom line is this stuff is serious with the neck, and Peyton Manning, despite four surgeries, comes back this year and leads his Broncos to a 13-3 and record, and I think he deserves some sort of award. If he's not going to get it for MVP or Offensive Player of the Year, give it to him for Comeback Player of the Year. And that is my regular season award. Moving on here in the stat pack to a game that I will call to fire or not to fire that involves not only the seven NFL coaches who were fired this past Monday by the respective teams, but also some coaches who have at least for now survived the hot seat this year and maybe in the hot seat next year. But bottom line is they will be with the team most likely next season. I'm looking at 10 guys. And first, I will start things off with Lovey Smith, fired by the Chicago Bears, ten and six this season had the second best defensive pass rating did the Chicago Bears. And for that reason, I think Lovey Smith should not have been fired. Look, this season obviously was not good for the Chicago Bears in the sense of a seven and one start to not make the playoffs that seemed like another collapse. But the bottom line is, Something that I mentioned at the halfway point of the season. The Chicago Bears in the first half of the year had a turnover rate that was not going to be replicated. They had just too many defensive touchdowns, too many interceptions, too many turnovers to take the Bears seriously as a team that could keep up what they were doing in the second half of the season. And unfortunately, their offense just never turned it around. Now, what I think would have been the better thing for the Chicago Bears was for them to force an offensive coordinator on the Chicago Bears and force an offensive coordinator that was not Mike Martz. Let's not blame Lovey Smith for that one. You look at how the players responded to this firing and some people are saying that this is the most they've ever seen players upset at a coach getting fired. These players loved Lovey Smith. This Bears team was committed to making it to the Super Bowl and now all of a sudden The Bears look like they're going to decide to rebuild and I think that's going to be a mistake because their defense is not going to get better than what it was in recent seasons especially this past year with the year that Charles Tillman had and Tim Jennings had. This was something where the Bears needed to stick it out I think at least for another season and they could have had a chance to make it to the Super Bowl if they fixed up that offense next season but bottom line I think they walked out on their best chance at making it to a Super Bowl. So I thought it was a mistake to fire lovey Smith. Next up on our list is Andy Reid. And this answer is yes to fire. Duh. Bottom line is the Eagles at 4-12 and this season were really lost on the Reid, the Andy Reid message. And I think it just happened to be because of how long Andy Reid was there. Bottom line is after coaches there so long, the message wears thin. It's not really Andy Reid's fault more so than the player's fault or vice versa. It's just the way time works out. And you just look at the way things have worked out in the past few years since Jim Johnson, may he, he rest in peace, passed away. Those defenses in Philadelphia have not been that good. You look at the debacle with Jim Washburn calling Juan Castillo Juanita and they fire Juan Castillo when the Eagles were second in defensive passer rating. And they fall all the way down near the bottom. Just that even alone, I think, along with the misuse of Michael Vick, just cost the Philadelphia Eagles and a big reason why they went 4-12. and And while that dog in the background is not sound effect, that's actually my dog. I guess bad timing for that one with talking about Michael Vick. But anywho, bottom line is... You look at it, Andy Reid, he just lost his way with his team, with the scheme, with the coaches, with the players, and he absolutely needed to go. So that is a duh. And you can, you know what, add in the next guy, Norv Turner, yes, to fire, duh. You look at the San Diego Chargers this year, another disappointment at 7-9, and nine, but another year where Phillip Rivers continued to make costly mistakes. And bottom line is if you have an offensive guy like Norv Turner unable to fix the quarterback then you just have the message lost on the guy so I thought North Turner had to go as well next up on the list is Browns head coach Pat Shermer fired by Cleveland after 5 and 11 season with the Browns and my answer to it is yes to fire I called for this back in well about week one when Pat Shermer decided in the fourth quarter with the Browns Scoring to go ahead, fifteen to ten to go for the extra point against the Eagles instead of tying it. This, despite Brandon Whedon having an all just a horrible, awful day, a horrible, awful day as I like to call it, for the Browns as a quarterback in his first ever start. And the Browns would go on to lose seventeen sixteen. And really, just to be honest, I thought he lacked any sort of inventive ability offensively. He really had no creativity. The Browns had uh, just a a terrible 1992-esque offense last year with Colt McCoy. and I thought he misused him. I thought Brandon Whedon had his moments, but for the most part, really didn't do much either. And and just really, Pat Schirmer didn't seem like he could motivate the guys, didn't have good game management skills, so I just thought he wasn't fit to be head coach, and I thought the Browns made the right choice. Next up on our list is Chan Gailey, and my answer is yes to fire, just based on his misuse of C.J. Spiller. Remember, I talked about C.J. Spiller last week, and early on his numbers look Hall of Fame worthy. The way they've been misusing him, especially after this season, just inexcusable, and it was time for Chan Gailey to go. Next up on our list, Ken Wisenhunt. Fired by the Arizona Cardinals after a 5-11 and season where the Cardinals started off 4-0. and But my answer here is to not fire. Not to fire, really. You can't fire a guy who has the top-rated pass defense. And that's what the Cardinals had here in 2012. The problem was, the team just didn't have a quarterback. And can you blame that completely on the head coach? Well, my answer is no. You have a GM, Rod Graves. Find a quarterback. You could have got anyone. Really, that was better than this quartet of guys. Try and draft someone. You had the chances this past year. Kirk Cousins or somebody. Problem was, the Cardinals traded for Kevin Cobb and really didn't have much other options. They never really gave Matt Liner a chance. And While Ken Wisenhunt does deserve blame for that, he doesn't deserve all the blame where he should have been fired. I thought he still had that team in the right direction and just needed a quarterback. So, get the quarterback. Don't get rid of coaches and start all over again. And then finally, among the fired head coaches, their last name, Romeo crenell And my answer is yes to fire. Because, unfortunately, the Chiefs just never really showed signs of improvement in terms of their efficiency in their 2-14 season. It seemed like every week they would get worse and pass rating differential or stay just as bad and bendability and scoreability and all that stuff. And they would get shut out by the Raiders this year, which probably was a fireball offense in itself. So unfortunately for Romeo Cornell, although I like him, yes, to fire. Meanwhile, we have three more names. First off, among those who have survived, Jason Garrett. And the answer is yes, to fire. I already mentioned it. Get rid of him and Rob Ryan. The Cowboys, just they're not a good coached team. They're just not well coached. Bottom line and the Cowboys just need to get over it, move on, and get a new guy. Next up, Jim Schwartz, head coach of the Detroit Lions. The Lions losing their last eight games, 4-12. and 12. Should he have been fired? My answer is yes, to fire. Not only is, in my opinion, Jim Schwartz immature and petulant and arrogant, but really he's not getting this team... Up to the discipline level they need. Okay. Things go fine and well when you're winning, and that was obviously a good thing last year when the Lions made the playoffs. But this year the Lions were worse, really in a worse part in terms of being bad than they were good last year. And it was a lot due to the fact that this team wasn't disciplined. Matt Stafford hasn't learned to take care of the football. And Dominick Sue hasn't learned to be a decent human being on the football field, no matter how good of a person he is off the field. And just, in general, this team, just horrible. Not using the running backs at all. Matt Stafford threw over 700 times, set the NFL record for most passing attempts. It's just horrible, in my opinion. Just good for nothing, and you need to, I think, restart with the with a new voice for this team, even if it was like a Gunther Cunningham or something. Just not the arrogant, petulant Jim Schwartz. And then finally, Ron Rivera, man who I called for his firing a few weeks ago towards the beginning of the season after the Panthers blew away their chance to beat the Falcons in Week 4, blew away their chance to beat the Seahawks in Week 5, and then blew away their chance to win against the Buccaneers when they blew an 11-point lead. They could have been 9 and 7 this No, you know make that 10 and 6 this season. But my answer is to not fire Ron Rivera. I think he actually earned a chance to keep moving forward. The Panthers won their last four games of the season and somehow some way improved upon their 2011 season. So they go from 2 and 14 to 6 and 10 to 7 and 9. Their defense did get better. Cam Newton, after what looked to be, during the beginning, some serious sophomore slump issues, he found a way to close out the year strong. Ron Rivera earned himself another season. And that concludes my game of to fire or not to fire. And we wrap up the stat pack here with a look at my power rankings of the 12 playoff teams when it comes to their chance. To win Super Bowl 47. Now this isn't exactly the same thing as I've been doing in recent weeks, where I just rank teams based on the quality stats plus some other statistical indicators, who they've beaten, how they look, and all the it combined it's going to be based on the teams I think by precedent have the best chance of winning the Super Bowl. So it's going to be a little bit different. You're not going to see the Patriots at number one and. Well, you're not going to see really the same exact rankings that you had in previous weeks. It's going to be a bit different. So, let's get right down to things beginning with number 12, bottom on our list. We go 12 to 1 here on a countdown. Number 12, the Indianapolis Colts. Look, this team was 2 and 14 last season. No team 2 and 14 went on to win the Super Bowl the next season. Meanwhile, no rookie has won a Super Bowl, and you have Andrew Luck. Meanwhile, you have the Colts win seven games against non-quality teams by a touchdown or less. No team has even gone to the Super Bowl doing that. The Colts were blown out three times by 17 points or more, and we mentioned that in previous podcasts, how that's not a good sign for a Super Bowl hopeful. They were outscored by 30 points, and in fact, the Giants last year became the first NFL champion To be outscored in the regular season. So bottom line, no Colts in the playoffs, and the pass rating of thirteen point seven one is worse than any NFL champion ever. Number eleven is the Minnesota Vikings and the Vikings three and five on the road. No Super Bowl champion has ever had a losing record on the road. Keep that in mind as we move forward. But The Vikings only have plus 31 scoring differential. They were outgained this year by 215 yards and have a passer rating differential of negative 11.07, which is worse than any NFL champion. Number 10 on the list is the Cincinnati Bengals. And the reason why they're this slow on the list, Andy Dalton, 0-1 record in the playoffs. Again, only two Super Bowl champions, had a quarterback with a winless record entering the year of that postseason run. Aaron Rodgers, 0 1, Eli Manning, 0 2. Meanwhile, the Bengals losing four games to non quality opponents. If you're to look back to uh, the Super Bowl champions over the years, there's, I believe, only two teams that had four losses to non quality opponents the 88 49ers in the 2011 New York Giants and those were at 23 year intervals Super Bowl 23 and Super Bowl 46 this is not Super Bowl 69 and I'm gonna avoid the jokes there move forward now uh, for the Bengals to their four and five start in fact it was a three and five start no team in NFL history has won a Super Bowl with a three and five start or a four and five start so bottom line no Cincinnati Bengals in the Super Bowl in my opinion Number nine is the Washington Redskins with a rookie quarterback, Robert Griffin III, with a 7-3 record. Very few champions have three losses against non-quality teams, but the Redskins were 7-3 against non-quality teams. They were 5-11 last season, mind you. So, really, you're looking for a, a huge leap of faith here. Only three Super Bowl champions had a losing season the year prior and then of course the Redskins 3 and 6 start only four teams in NFL history started the year 3 and 6 to make the postseason of those four teams only one team actually won a playoff game that was in 1996 Jacksonville Jaguars who somehow made it to the AFC championship game after a monumental upset of the Denver Broncos in the divisional round but There was no Super Bowl there, so I moved past the Washington Redskins. Number eight on my list, the Baltimore Ravens. And they finished the year one and four. No Super Bowl team in history. Lost four of their final five regular season games. So the Ravens falling down towards the bottom, in my opinion. And oh, by the way, five wins against non-quality opponents by eight points or fewer. Not a good sign for those Ravens. Number seven on my list, and this is the most interesting one, the wild card of them all, the Seattle Seahawks. Number one in the quality stats power rankings. They look like the best team in the league, but they did go three and five on the road, three and three in the division, and lost four games to non-quality opponents None of those signs are good. We already talked about the 3-5 and five road record, the four losses to non-quality opponents. But how about the 3-3 three and three divisional record? There's been only, what, a handful of winners with a 3-3 three and three divisional record? The 2006 Indianapolis Colts, the 2007 New York Giants, and the 2011 New York Giants are your only three champions who had three division wins. In fact, you look at it, there was only one other Super Bowl champion that had three divisional losses since the NFL-AFL merger. So you have to look back a little bit here into the history books, go to the Wayback Machine here, and it's not an impressive list, my friends. We mentioned those three, but the only other one to get the job done with three divisional losses is the Two are the 1995 Dallas Cowboys. They went 5 and 3 against the NFC East, 12 and 4 overall, and that's your list four Super Bowl champions with three divisional losses. Oh, and finally, of course, there is the Russell Wilson rookie factor as mentioned for the third time here. No rookie quarterback has ever made it to the Super Bowl, let alone win it. So we move on now to number six on our list and that is somehow a team I guaranteed all of two weeks ago that they would not win the Super Bowl and that is the Houston Texans as my number six team. Three blowout losses, one and three in their last four games on a two game losing streak and oh by the way only two Super Bowl champions entered the playoffs on a losing streak so The Houston Texans have quite a bit of a way to go uh, before I think they have a Super Bowl chance, but at the least, outside of those two factors, uh, they do kind of have precedent looking at least not like it's going to knock them down. Matt Schaub has yet to have a playoff start. They did have a pretty good passer rating, 9.25. That's going to be in the lower rung of Super Bowl champions, but still it's not too bad, and you have... Some of the other factors going in their favor, divisional record, point differential, and the like. So Houston Texans, number six on my rankings. Number five is the Atlanta Falcons. That's right, the top seed in the NFC, number five on my list. And it's primarily because Matt Ryan, with his 0-3 start, does not have precedent in his favor. Meanwhile, the Falcons losing three games to non-quality opponents, going 3-3. in the division losing all of them to losing teams. Now, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I mentioned to you the teams that did have three divisional losses and went on to win the Super Bowl. I highly doubt that you have those scenarios teams losing them all to the teams with losing records that were 7 and 9 like the Falcons. So, I don't think precedent is in their favor. I don't think that uh, they're in the best of positions. And oh yeah, by the way, five one-possession victories against non-quality opponents. That is not good either, my friends. So the Falcons, they are number five. Behind the number four, San Francisco 49ers. Now I know they had the mid-season quarterback change. And the last team to have a mid-season quarterback change based on performance was the 2000 Baltimore Ravens switching to Trent Dilford. But the 49ers were 7-1-1 one and one against non-quality opponents. And really their weakest thing, they had two blowout losses, a 3-2-1 divisional record, and only 436 passing attempts. And the list is quite short on teams that had under 440 passing attempts and went on to win the Super Bowl. I talked about that way back when, about two months ago, The first time I looked at the Super Bowl credentials for the Seattle Seahawks. Number three on my list, we're going now to the official heavy hitters. First off, with the New England Patriots. Now, I have them the worst of my three here just because it's tough for a Super Bowl loser to repeat as conference champions. Only seven teams have done it. The 71 Dallas Cowboys, 72 Miami Dolphins, 74 Minnesota Vikings, 87, Denver Broncos, and then of course, the final three of the four consecutive AFC champion Buffalo Bills from 91 to 93, doing the repeat task after they began it in 1990. So, bottom line, it's going to be tough for the Patriots, but also they have a plus 25 turnover margin, and teams that have had to rely upon the turnover margin uh, well, those aren't exactly the teams with the best playoff history in the world. We mentioned it early in the year about the regression with the Chicago Bears. It was correctly predicted, and I just mentioned it earlier here, why people shouldn't be all that upset with the collapse by the Chicago Bears. But look at the teams who have made the Super Bowl with a plus 20 turnover margin. in the list is quite short, my friends, as I, in fact, actually try to find the list here we end up with only five teams with a plus 20 turnover margin or better who made it to the Super Bowl. So the New England Patriots with their plus 24 turnover margin would, in fact, if they made the Super Bowl, rank second among Super Bowl teams for best turnover margin. The only team that had a higher turnover margin, the 1983 Washington Redskins with a plus 43 turnover margin. And I'll tell you how much that mattered. They lost in the Super Bowl to the team with the worst turnover margin of all Super Bowl teams. The 83 Raiders went 12-4 and 4 despite a negative 13 turnover margin. So, bottom line, I think regression will be had somewhere along there. And can the Patriots get it done if they don't have a turnover advantage in mile high? I don't think so. And that is why I think that eventually... The New England Patriots will fall in the playoffs, so they are number three on my list. Number two on my list is the Green Bay Packers. The Packers, well, they're they're in pretty good shape here. Okay, 11 and five, not the greatest. Okay, Aaron Rodgers has gone one and done twice, but the Packers did not lose to a non-quality team. They were only blown out once. Their worst thing they have going for them is a four and four road record, but they did have a 4-4 four and four road record, or actually a 3-5 and five road record, I think, uh, when they made the Super Bowl and won it in 2010. So the question is, can the Packers do it again on the road two years later? That's pretty much the only thing holding them back. I think right now they are the prohibitive NFC favorite. And number one, top team I have ranked here, the Super Bowl favorite, is indeed the Denver Broncos. I understand Peyton Manning has only a 9-10 playoff record, but really the the worst thing they have going for them is a negative 1 turnover margin. There's been only a handful of teams that have had a negative turnover margin and made it to the Super Bowl. But again, as we just mentioned, the 83 Raiders of their negative 13 turnover margin defeated the Washington Redskins in their plus 43 turnover margin. So it is possible... I can look past that one little blip. Other than that, they really look like they have a pretty standard thing going here. Their 2-3 and three playoff record might also be a worry. But if you're to look at other teams here, other Super Bowl champions, and their records against playoff teams, even if you're to look at it since the field expanded to 12 teams in 1990, teams that had just two wins, or fewer even, Against playoff teams, the '97 Denver Broncos went two and three. The '99 St. Louis Rams went zero and two against playoff teams. The 2000 Ravens went one and two. The 2001 Patriots went two and two. The 2005 Pittsburgh Steelers went two and four, and the 2007 Giants went one and five. The two uh the 2011 Giants, meanwhile, went one and three to wrap up that list since 1990. So. Bottom line is, I'm not going to hold that pretty much against the Broncos either. So, bottom line, if we're looking at it, the favorite to win the Super Bowl is the Denver Broncos. So, the question is, what is my Super Bowl pick? Is it Broncos against Seahawks? Broncos against Packers? Broncos against Falcons? Well, the smart money... Smart money says Broncos, Packers. And I'm just going to let it play out from there, and we'll see what happens. But, that just about does it for this edition Of the Stat Pack, this is Adam Dubrovsky signing out. Everyone enjoy the beginning of the 2012 NFL postseason.